Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. Lord, we pray that you would meet us here in this morning as we gather in worship. May you receive our worship. May you minister to us in the very individualized and private and personal way that only your spirit can. We invite that work to be done with in our hearts. Let your word be living and active. And uh, may it open and expose the things that need to be exposed and heal the wounds that need to be healed. We pray that over the course of this weekend, there would be some real important, pivotal encounters with you that would reshape the direction of our lives and help us to understand your calling, your purpose for each one of us. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Last night, we started off the retreat um, looking at this message of Paul to slaves in the uh, first century church. And the call to live and do our work with passion and um, with faithfulness, with integrity. And that message last night, I pointed out how often we work in very broken environments with a lot of dissatisfaction with our jobs and how often, even as believers in Christ, we end up just mirroring that dissatisfaction of the world. But when we really understand the gospel, when we really understand God's call on us, we realize that we as the light, the salt of the world, we're, we're called to be in those very places of brokenness and darkness to represent God's healing touch. And maybe the truth is in your work environment, you'll never be acknowledged for all the sacrifices you make, the above and beyond that you go to to perform your job well. Maybe, maybe through years in that company, You'll never get promoted. No one will ever recognize that. In fact, maybe through all the office politics, you may get the short end of that stick because it's really about favors and who likes who. But what Scripture says is God sees. He sees everything and one day will reward everything according to what we have done. So work for God's eyes because nothing that we do in his name will be lost. It's that position of faith with which we can enter our work and live that out as a calling that God alone can give us. This morning, I want to look at a bit of a different story in the book of Judges, chapter 6, verses 1 through 16, and this calling of this man named Gideon during an era of the Israelite history known as the era of the Judges. So if you have your Bible with you, I would invite you to turn there to Judges, chapter 6, or you can follow along the scripture reading that will be shown up here on the screen. And it says, Again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hand of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel. Neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. 
It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt, from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave them your land, gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the, the Abiz, the right, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. These are the uh, top baby names so far in 2016. For the boys, it's Liam, Noah, Ethan, Mason, Lucas, Oliver, Aiden, Logan, James, Elijah. And I bet you you've got quite a few of these names in your children's ministry, don't you? On the women's side, or the girl's side, it's Emma, Olivia, Ava, Sophia, Isabella, Maya, Charlotte, Harper, uh, Amelia, and Abigail. It's interesting, throughout most of human history, names were given to babies based on some type of uh, societal or cultural tradition about certain meanings that are attributed to those names. Um, in America, we've sort of moved away from that trend, haven't we? Where the meanings of names no longer seems to factor very heavily in the choice of the names we give our babies. In fact, quite often I think the choice is simply made on parents liking the way the name sounds, phonetically. So you find in our day, in America... Asian babies with Irish names, Irish babies with German names. And if you sort of ask a parent, why did you choose this name? You get answers all across the board. One thing that's undeniable is when a celebrity names a baby, that name becomes popular, right? Um, A lot of American moms will also say, and moms and dads will say, well, We want our child to be unique. And in this whole sea of children when they're in preschool, we want the teacher to pay attention to them. So they try to find as unique a name as possible so that that child will stand out from the crowd. Why did you choose your names for your children? In the Bible, the most important factor is the meaning. What does that name represent? In Israel... The name represented the essence of the person. It revealed something very vital about who you were or who your parents hoped you would be, your destiny. It's interesting, when you look in Scripture, you find that even God himself has 
many names, not just one name. And each of these names reveals a particular aspect of his character. In fact, when you read both the Old and New Testaments, what you discover is that almost every time God decides to do a new work of redemption among his people, he attaches to that work a new name that he reveals to his people that was never known before. When God called Moses at the burning bush to set his people free from slavery in Egypt, he revealed the name Yahweh, which means I am, the God who has eternally existed and is with his people. At the announcement of the birth of Jesus through the prophet Isaiah, we are given a new name of God, which is Emmanuel, God with us. When you read in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, the Apostle Paul gives us an image of Jesus riding on a white horse, wearing a robe red, stained with blood. And what you find very interestingly in Revelation 19, verse 12, is it says, he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. In other words, in this final act of redemptive history, when Christ comes to bring an end of history, there seems to be a final name that is yet to be revealed. And we're not even sure if this name is going to be told to us or if it will remain a secret name for all eternity. But if it follows the pattern of the rest of redemptive history, I think there's a pretty strong likelihood that that name will be revealed to us in the final end of history. The Bible is filled with people who God gives new names to. He changes people's names all the time. Abram was changed to Abraham, which means father of many. Jacob's name was changed to Israel, which means may God prevail. Simon's name was changed to Peter, which means the rock. Each of these new names represented a new identity that God had given these people. A new calling, a new destiny for their lives. All of us were given a name at birth. But they don't necessarily tell us a lot about who we are, right? Because at the time we were just unformed infants with no personality. But what's interesting is even for us as we get on later in life... For maybe quite a few of us, we end up acquiring additional names, don't we? In America, we call them nicknames. And those nicknames are actually a lot more informative than our birth names, aren't they? Because they usually reveal something about what people think of us. When I was a child growing up in the suburbs of Chicagoland, uh, my brother and I basically attended schools where there were almost no Asians. And so during my primary school years, particularly when I got to junior high, I was given this nickname by my classmates, and it was Bruce. Can you guess why? Okay. Uh, And it wasn't in a racist way. (laughs) It was actually almost like a term of endearment, so that any time teacher would call me, any time that I would catch a ball during P.E., I would hear those rumbles, bruise, bruise, rolling through the crowd, you know? And I think they thought it was a fun name for me, but here's the honest truth, is I didn't like that nickname. Because every time they called me Bruce, it was a reminder that I was Asian and that I was not like them. 
that I was somehow different. So I never told any of them that, but I was so glad when I was done with junior high and no one ever called me Bruce again. When I got to college, I was given a new nickname by my friends. They ended up calling me MacGyver. Do you know who MacGyver is? Maybe some of you are too young to know. I'm sure many of you are old enough to know. This is MacGyver. MacGyver was a TV show in the 1980s and 90s about a secret agent that could do anything. Even the most complicated problems could be solved by this guy. He could take household chemicals and make them into bombs or poisons. He once made an airplane out of garbage bags, sticks, and a generator, okay? Uh, He seemed to know everything about every subject. And so I really liked this nickname, you know? I thought, this is what my friends think of me. I am MacGyver, you know? I was proud whenever they called me MacGyver. It was a sign of respect, I thought. There are some names that we're given that we try to run away from, aren't there? There are some names that we're labeled with that we're proud of. Other names we wish we were given, but we weren't. I want to ask you as I start off this message this morning, what are the names that you've been given in your life? What are your nicknames? What are the things that you were called growing up? I want to talk about this idea of being given a new name, not by others, but by God himself, and what the implication of that new name may be for our calling, through this calling of this man named Gideon. The book of Judges begins with the death of Joshua. You may know that Joshua took the place of Moses when Moses died. After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness under Joshua's leadership, the Israelites, uh, under Moses' leadership, uh, they were finally ready to enter the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. And so what that in essence amounts to is that for many years, the Israelites were under good leadership. The leadership of Moses and then Joshua. But after Joshua dies... There's a leadership vacuum during this era known as the Judges. In Judges chapter 2, verse 8 to 10, it says, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who, neither, who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. These were dark days in Israel. It was a period of time that was marked by repeated cycles of the Israelites turning their back on God, being punished, and then repenting and returning back to him. It was also a time when the Israelites were under constant attack by their enemies. In the Gideon days of Gideon, they were harassed by these group of people known as the Midianites and the Amalekites who came from the east. And unlike other groups like the Philistines that would actually try to occupy their land and wipe them out, what these Midianites and these Amalekites were doing was they were just harassing them, sending these raiding parties. They would time it for the harvest. Whenever the harvest season came, they would come and destroy all of Israel's crops and kill them. 
And this harassment became so unbearable for the Israelites that they eventually abandoned their houses and like animals lived in the surrounding caves and mountainsides. It is in this time period that God appears to Gideon while he's threshing wheat. Now, we have to understand what's happening here. We're not farmers here, so we may not really understand what this is all about. When you thresh wheat, what you're basically doing is you're taking these stalks of wheat and you're whacking them against the ground or something hard to dislodge the edible grain from the chaff. Okay? And the next process is what's called winnowing, where you take like a pitchfork or something and you toss all that stuff up into the air so that the wind will blow away all the chaff and you're just left with the grain that you can eat or make bread out of. Okay? And so that process would make sense to do usually on a hillside in very open country where the wind is blowing. But Gideon is threshing in a wine press. In those days, a wine press was basically a hole carved into the ground, usually in a rock, where you could press the grapes in order to make wine. Why is Gideon threshing wheat in a wine press? Because he is scared for his life. He is terrified that the Midianites and Amalekites will come any moment if they see him doing this and kill him. Destroy his grain. I think if Gideon had a spirit animal, it would look something like this. Like a frightened, cornered animal, Gideon is threshing wheat in a hole in the ground. This is the scene that you have to picture. In order to understand how almost comical it is, if not outright cruel, When God appears to Gideon and says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Must have sounded like a joke to Gideon. Why are you calling me that? Are you making fun of me? Where's this mighty warrior? Because it's not me. Sadly, Gideon's response is one of doubt and disbelief. First, in light of the circumstances, he finds it hard that God could actually be with him. Verse 13, but sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. But God reassures him in verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? In essence, he says, go with whatever you've got. Don't worry. Because aren't I the one sending you? I will be with you. To which Gideon says in verse 15, But Lord, Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Basically, what Gideon is saying to God is, I come from the weakest clan in Israel. And among this sad, sorry group of people, I am the weakest. I am a nobody. If there ever was a mighty warrior in the heart of this man Gideon, the brutality of the world in which he lived beat it out of him. That's not me, God. You've got the wrong guy. Find somebody else to do your work. It's interesting, when you look at all of the different stories of calling in the Bible, 
this calling of Gideon is not unique in its pessimism. If you think about Abraham, when God called Abram to become Abraham at the age of 99 to be the father of many nations, Abraham's reaction was to laugh in disbelief. In Genesis 17, 17, it says, Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? He said, you have got to be kidding me, God. This is a joke. I'm going to be the father of many. Remember how Moses reacted when God called him. Exodus 4, verse 13, Moses said, Oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. Why me? I cannot speak well. I am slow of speech. Why in the world would you choose me to be your spokesperson? I am the least qualified in Israel. John Eldridge, who works primarily with men, talks about the wounds that we all carry in our lives that are often inflicted because of the fact that we all grow up and live in a broken world. As we go through life, we are inevitably wounded by others who hurt us in different ways, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And what Eldridge says is, these wounds end up giving us our identity, giving us our name. We become what these wounds tell us we are. He writes, Every man carries a wound, I have never met a man without one. No matter how good your life may have seemed to you, you live in a broken world full of broken people. Your mother and father, no matter how wonderful, couldn't have been perfect. She is a daughter of Eve, and he a son of Adam. So there is no crossing through this country without taking a wound. And every wound, whether it's assaultive or passive, delivers with it a message. The message feels final and true, absolutely true, because it is delivered with such force. Our reaction to it shapes our personality in very significant ways. From that flows the false self. Most of the men you meet are living out of a false self, a pose which is directly related to his wound. Let me try to make this clear. The message delivered with my wound, my father disappearing into his own battles, was simply this. You are on your own, John. There is no one in your corner, no one to show you the way, and above all, no one to tell you if you are or are not a man. The core question of your soul has no answer and can never get one. One Christian writer writes about his earliest memory of his own wound. When he was six or seven years old, he was playing with some toy soldiers. And his father was sleeping nearby, taking a nap. And in his exuberance of his playtime, one of the toy soldiers flew out of his hand and landed smack on his father's face. And his father awoke angry at what had happened. And his father told him to come to him. And his father promised him, I'm not going to punish you, just come. And so trusting his father, he approached. And the second he became within reaching distance, his father flung his arm and slapped him really hard across the face. And this Christian writer says, 
As the pain and fear mixed together with the shock of his anger, I took the wound. The handprint on my cheek eventually faded. The arrow he put into my heart, the heart of a little boy who loved his father enough to trust him at his word, took longer, much longer to dislodge. Thus began the journey of one man's wound, realizing that the very ones that he trusted and loved, who were supposed to love and protect him, became his abuser again and again. For you, your wound may not be the result of the abuse of someone that you loved. Maybe for you, your wound comes from the passive wound of a mother or father who never gave you the affirmation and approval that you craved so desperately. No matter how many good report cards, how many ways that you excelled in sports, there was never an attaboy, never an arm around the shoulder that was accompanied by the comment, I'm so proud of you. Maybe it wasn't even your parents. Maybe your wound comes from a friend or even a pastor that you trusted, but who hurt you. How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. I'm a nobody. You know, um, if I really try to be honest with my own wound, Dave and I, I think, if you heard from Dave at all, one of the things he'll recurrently say, and I'll echo, is that we grew up in, I think, a very loving, affirming family. And Dave and I didn't realize what a privilege and what a gift that was until we began to realize the dysfunction in many others' families. But our parents were so loving to us and so affirming, so caring. But when I think about my own wound, throughout childhood, Dave was always the fun guy. He was always the friendly one. He was always the popular one. In a party, he was always the life of the party. Everyone wanted to talk with him. I was always the quiet one, lurking in the background, brooding in my inner world of my dark thoughts. And my thoughts get very dark very easily. Um, just as an example, I was, so I've been, for the last couple of years, I've been getting my hair cut at this place my brother recommended out there in Schaumburg, and it's a Korean hair salon. And I just, it's this angst I have every time I go there, because they all speak Korean, and I don't speak Korean well. So I'm sitting there waiting to get my hair cut and I'm going through this whole existential crisis about why I'm a creature with hair, you know, and why it is that I have to get this haircut. And then I went to this whole dark thing about my, about, uh, my struggles with the Korean heritage and all this and, and I cannot shut off this voice. And I'm like, why can't you be like everyone else and just get a haircut? You know, like, why are you thinking about being a hairy being and all of this? Like, what is wrong with you, you know? And here's the truth is, I almost never share these thoughts with other people because I know they're weird. I know they're strange. And in those rare moments that I've revealed those thoughts, the response was almost always awkward silence. Too much information. I wish you didn't tell me that. And through experiences like that from early childhood into my adult life, the message was sent very clear to me. I am different. I am strange. I am weird. And that's, I think, the shadow that I grew up with is people don't understand you. They don't get you. You're you're different than everyone. 
You have weird thoughts. I wonder what level of honesty that you have with your wounds that you carry in your heart that tell you who you are, what you're worth. I think the truth is it's possible to go through your entire life never acknowledging the wounds that you carry in your heart. One of the ways that I realize my wound expresses itself in my adult life is my sometimes obsessive, if not self-destructive and self-loathing perfectionism. You know, it's really hard for me to ever listen to one of my sermon tapes. Tapes. The MP3 files, all right? Um, because I am mercilessly, I'm a merciless critic when it comes to my sermons. If I make one grammatical error, I beat myself up over again. You idiot. You're so stupid. It was the subjective case, not the objective case or whatever it is, you know? And I replay that error over and over again in my head. How does your wound reveal itself in your life? Maybe it's a hyper-competitive spirit in which you see everyone else as the competition to be beaten. Or maybe it's in your overachieving, workaholic drive to succeed that you can never slow down. Maybe it's in your inability to be emotionally vulnerable with your spouse or with your children. You swore that you would be a better dad, but the truth is you can't bring yourself to tell your kids how much you love them so they never hear it from your lips. The 2015 movie Creed, which is the latest in the Rocky series, tells the story of Adonis Johnson Creed. We're told as the story unfolds that he is the illegitimate son of the championship boxer Apollo Creed. He was born as a result of a brief affair that Apollo Creed had with another woman during a difficult time in his marriage. And as a result, Adonis or Donnie Creed or Johnson becomes a boxer himself. And he refuses to use the name Creed. He uses the name Johnson his mother's name, instead. Why? Because he's determined to become a championship boxer on his own terms, without the help of his father's name. And so eventually, Rocky becomes his trainer, and he gets into these fights, and he's climbing the ranks, and one day he gets his big break to fight this guy named Ricky Conlon, the light heavyweight champion of the world. And it's a fight that's really, he's not ready for. It's really too much for him. And as the fight progresses, it's clear that Donnie is outmatched by the champion. And by the ending rounds, his face is this bloody mess. And his trainer, Rocky, wants to stop the fight, arguing, I should have stopped the fight with your father. I'm stopping this one now. Up to this point in the movie, It seems like this is simply a story about a man who is trying to rise above the shadow of a famous father to be his own man. But in this moment, Donnie reveals that his struggle as a boxer is much deeper than that. Begging his trainer, Rocky, not to stop the fight, he shouts back at Rocky, Don't, okay? Let me finish. I've got to prove it. And Rocky is confused. And he says, prove what? 
Donnie, with tears flowing out of his eyes, shouts back one of the most poignant lines in the movie, that I'm not a mistake. That I'm not a mistake. There it is, the wound. How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Who am I? I'm a nobody. I'm a loser. None of us should be surprised that God chooses a man like Gideon to lead Israel's armies to battle. Why? Because I believe God has a funny habit of calling people who feel utterly unqualified to do what is asked of them. When you think of these men, like Abraham, Jacob, Moses, it really seems like God is scraping from the bottom of the barrel to find guys like this. Think about David, King David, when he was chosen. Remember that story? Samuel, the prophet, comes to Jesse, the father of David, and says, God has told me that the next king of Israel is going to come from among your sons. So bring them to me. They have this big party, a whole feast is held, and all of David's sons, uh, Jesse's sons are lined up. And Samuel's going, looking at eye to eye at everyone, not you, not you, not you. And he gets to the last one and says, the prophet is confused. And he says, I swear I heard right from the Lord. He says, is this all of your sons? And Jesse's like, yeah, this is all of them. Pick from one of them. He goes, is this really all your sons? He goes, well, yeah, these are all the sons I have. What's well, up, David? You know, he even, he's a footnote. He goes, yeah, the runt, he's out there tending the sheep, but he's not obviously going to be the chosen one. And Samuel says, we're not going to move until you get him. So he comes and gets a little dirty boy from the field. And Samuel says, that's the one, right? And everyone's like, him? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 to 29. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. What Paul is saying is that God intentionally seems to choose the least likely candidates. So that the focus would not be on the messenger, but on the message and the one who sends it. It's interesting that God calls Gideon a mighty warrior before he actually is one. If you read further in the story of Gideon, which I would actually urge you to do, Gideon does, in fact, become a mighty warrior. Some of Israel's greatest military exploits will happen under the generalship of this man Gideon. But in that moment, he is not. In that moment, he is a cowardly farmer threshing wheat in a hole in the ground, afraid for his life. But because God's presence was with him, God knew that he would be a mighty warrior one day. I believe to believe in our new name is to see ourselves as God sees us. Now, As I'm talking about this idea of a new name, some of you may be wondering, are you talking about a literal new name or figuratively? And I think I mean both. At some level, I think we can talk about a new name as just being a symbolic name of everything that God offers us in the gospel as a new identity in Jesus Christ. But I also want to offer that maybe through prayer and searching, maybe God may, like he did to so many others in the Bible, give you an actual literal new name through the voice of his spirit speaking into your life. To have faith in God 
is to believe in what he calls us over and against whatever you've been called up to that point in your life. To be completely defined by his love for you and how he sees you. Philip Yancey says this. Sociologists have a theory of the looking glass self. You become what the most important person in your life, wife, father, boss, etc., thinks you are. How would my life change if I truly believed the Bible's astounding words about God's love for me? If I looked in the mirror and saw what God sees. That's what the gospel is inviting us to. It's to see ourselves the way God sees us. With love and affirmation. In the movie Gladiator, Russell Crowe plays a Roman general who falls victim to a coup against the emperor Marcus Aurelius that he serves. And in the aftermath of that coup, his family is killed. His wife and his son are put to death. And he himself is sold into slavery and eventually finds himself a gladiator. And as a gladiator, he has no name. Throughout the whole first part of that movie, he is simply referred to as gladiator. Like all the other anonymous men fighting for their lives in the arena, he's a nobody. He is nameless. He is only a slave. He exists only for the pleasure of others, to entertain others by killing other men. But underneath that gladiator's armor, he never forgot who he truly was. His true identity. One of the most dramatic scenes in the movie, in the arena, he removes his gladiator's helmet to reveal his face, who he really is. And he says those lines that sent chills down my spine when I first saw this movie. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix legions, loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife. Despite everything that he had been through and every attempt to destroy his identity, Maximus never forgot what his name was, who he truly was. G.K. Chesterton says, every man has forgotten who he is. We are all under the same mental calamity. We have all forgotten our names. We have all forgotten what we really are. But through the Gospels, we need God to speak who we really are. That we are ones who are loved by God for whom Jesus has died. And I think the truth is, a lot of us struggle to receive that, don't we? In this sort of false humility, we find it very hard to receive love like that from God. I told you earlier that calling Gideon mighty warrior seemed almost comical, if not cruel. It's interesting that often in the new name that God gives us, he brings us right back toward the place of our wounds. Hiding in a hole in the ground, I think the last thing that Gideon wanted to be reminded of is his cowardice. But it's as if God is highlighting it when he calls him mighty warrior. Courage is the last thing on Gideon's mind. And yet in giving Gideon a new name, he brings Gideon right back to that place of his shame, his greatest embarrassment. That happened to Abram, didn't it? 
Abraham laughs when he's given a new name, father of many. It must have sounded like a cruel joke. Here's the thing is, if you went over to dinner at Abraham and Sarah's house, there's one thing you don't talk about at the dinner table, right? It's children. Your kid may have gotten into University of Jerusalem, getting a PhD in Hebrew studies, and you're so proud of him. But you don't talk about it in front of Abram and Sarah because this is an elderly, infertile couple, and you don't rub it in their face about kids. It was like God was opening a wound when he mentioned the issue of children with Abram. When Jesus first called Simon Peter, I almost picture the other disciples bursting in laughter. <laughs> that guy, the rock, that's a good one, Jesus. That's funny. Because the best words to describe Peter up to that point would have been things like rash, unwise, overconfident, low impulse control. The guy had no filters, right? He had no stability, no foundation. He was all over the map, making all kinds of ridiculous claims, overconfident. And Jesus says, Peter, you are the rock. You are the rock. I almost Peter, pictured Peter looking down and saying, don't call me that, Jesus. Why are you calling me that? Like, why are you trying to rub that in my face? You know I'm not a rock. I thought of this. Of all the people that, Jesus, uh, that God could have called, to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt, why did he choose Moses? There were plenty of Jews to pick from, from Egypt. Instead, he goes out of his way to go all the way to the Midian desert and pick this broken 80-year-old man to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. You see, Egypt was the place of Moses' shame. It was why he ran away into the desert in the first place. I think there was a time when Moses thought he could have been the chosen one. When he was in his 40s. Because he was a prince of Egypt. Though he was in Israel, he grew up as Egyptian royalty. And I think that's why, frankly, he killed that Egyptian, didn't he? I think there was a moment in in Moses' life when he probably thought, I am the chosen one. Why else would I have been raised in Pharaoh's court for such a time as this? But running for his life after he murdered that Egyptian, I think he never looked back in that rearview mirror. That's my place of shame. That's my place of failure, of brokenness. And God comes to Moses and says, guess what? I'm bringing you right back to Pharaoh's court. And I'm going to redeem that brokenness. I'm going to redeem that shame. And you will be a deliverer of my people. Why does God do this? Is it out of cruelty? I don't think so. I think in giving us a new name, in giving us a new identity, God often brings us back to the place of our shame, to the place of our wound, because he wants to heal those wounds and redeem them for his glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Being given a new name is not only about being given a new identity, but also being given a new mission, a new purpose in life. Mighty warrior, 
I am going to lead Israel's armies through you. Often God not only delivers us from our painful past, but also redeems it so that he could use it for his glory. You know, I told you about how much I struggled with this feeling of being different, being weird. But I realized God is leveraging that weirdness to become a preacher of his gospel. Now I share that weirdness with people as a preacher. Those very areas that you're trying to run away from, that you're embarrassed of, that you're trying to bury, might I suggest to you that maybe God wants to redeem and heal some of those areas of your life so that you can minister to others and heal others' wounds in Jesus' name. Let me close with this and we'll end here. Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, we find this interesting promise of God to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Let's pray. As we've been saying, the theme of this retreat is called out. God calling us out of the darkness in which we once lived to be bearers, recipients of this wonderful light, the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if I can just invite you in this morning session, before we think about getting into this expo with all the ministries and ways that you can get involved and becoming activists for Jesus, before we think about the activity of being missional, I think we have to start at a deeper place of our wounds. These scars that we bear, maybe these scars came from parents, from a previous church, from a friend. I don't know. Maybe they're self-inflicted wounds that you have caused yourself. I want to tell you that our mission doesn't begin until we receive true healing that comes from God. And the truth is, I think sometimes we as Christians hide behind our activism, thinking that by busying ourselves with activity, we can run away from our past. But I think what God says is, you know, the very pathway to being used by me is to let me touch those wounds that you don't want anyone touching. These are places that are so deep, so dark, so buried, so covered, that the truth is you may have gone through long stretches of your Christian life, never willing to acknowledge to anyone of past abuse and other things that just, it feels too vulnerable, it feels too risky to go to those places. It's like Abram and Sarah, elderly, infertile couples, being reminded of their infertility. And God saying, you know, I still have a purpose for you. It's about an 80-year-old man broken in the desert tending sheep and God coming to him in a burning bush saying, I'm going to bring you back to that place of your shame, that place of your failure, and I'm going to redeem it and use you for something mighty for my name. You just have to trust me. You don't have to trust yourself. You don't have to look in the mirror and like what you see necessarily, but you have to believe in my word and my presence that I will be with you. Maybe you come to this place broken, and feeling like, man, I'm messed up in more ways than you can imagine. I'm a loser. I'm a nobody. I'm weird. I'm different. 
God says, it's not about you. It's about me and what I can do with broken people. If only they would trust in me and my presence in your life. That's what I want to invite you to this morning. It's not an act of heroism, making bold and passionate commitments of what you will do for the Lord, but simply coming and saying, Lord, touch my wound and heal me and give me that new name. Give me the faith to believe your truth more than all the lies I've been told all of my life. Help me to embrace the gospel truth that I am one that is infinitely and unconditionally loved by you. And the cross proves that. Can you just pray that for a few minutes as we have this time of response before the Lord? Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.